So what are the odds? In the 1950s, Peter Stoner, he wasn't one uh, stoner. That was just his name, I think. In fact, he was a professor of mathematics. And Peter Stoner gave 600 of his students uh, a probability problem. And the problem was to determine the odds for one person fulfilling eight specific prophecies. So the first thing they did was the students calculated the odds of one person fulfilling all the requirements of one prophecy. For instance, Jesus being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. So there are four conditions right there, right? A friend, betrayal, silver, 30 pieces. Then the students had to do their best to estimate the odds of one person fulfilling all the conditions of eight different prophecies, such as the Messiah would be born in, in Bethlehem, that he would be struck and spit upon, that he would enter Jerusalem triumphantly, uh, that his garments would be divided, Okay, th those sorts of prophecies. The students calculated that the odds against one person fulfilling all eight prophecies are astronomical, one in ten to the 21st power. That's a lot of zeros, right? One in 10 to the 21st power. Now, the American Scientific Association examined Stoner's work, and they said that it's based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound, right? So this experiment got, 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 the, got the check mark. Bible scholars tell us that nearly 300 references to 30, 61 specific prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. 61, not just eight. Prophecies that were written by many different people over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. They didn't come from one person in one point of time. The odds against one person fulfilling that many prophecies would be beyond all mathematical possibility. Unless, of course, you are Jesus, right? the Son of God, then you can do that. So I hope that these impossible odds first are a comfort to you this morning. To realize that Jesus did do all of these things and to marvel for all his detractors, for all people say about Jesus in the Bible, how he really did fulfill these prophecies. But beyond being a comfort to you this morning, I hope that they serve as a challenge to you. Because it's very clear that God has a plan. It's very clear that God is fulfilling that plan. And it's very clear that in the fulfillment of that plan, God is outside of the odds, outside of probability, right? And so you and I then should be excited, and we should be passionate, and we should be confident in taking our place in fulfilling the plan as it continues to unfold. That's what we must be, excited passionate, confident that we are a part in fulfilling this ongoing plan of God. That's what I want to talk about this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place in Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. 
the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter, beginning in the 19th verse, this is the word of God. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again so much for your word. Thank you that our hope uh, is found in its pages as your word reveals you to us, who you are, your character, reveals who we are to us, reveals to us what it is we should do and how we should live our lives. And so as we come now to your word, Lord, first I pray that you would receive the glory for who you reveal yourself to be. Lord, secondly, that we would become more the people that you desire us to be particularly as we seek to build your kingdom in our time, in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As you are coming to realize, if there is at least one truth that Matthew makes clear to the readers of this gospel, that truth is that God has a plan and that he is fulfilling it. Look in verse 23. It says there, once again, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. This is the fourth time in just two chapters where Matthew makes this same point. That everything that is happening is happening to fulfill the plan of God. Four times he reminds his readers of that. Perhaps it's because... Matthew had been faithful to pray in the course of his life. The prayer that Jesus taught him and the other disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And perhaps it is that praying that prayer over and over primed Matthew in the way that he looked at his life. It made him think about God's will and what it means to live by God's will. It it made him think about God's coming kingdom and, and what his place might be in it. And perhaps that's why Matthew writes so much in his gospel about the will of God being done, being fulfilled. Why he writes about the advancement of the kingdom of God. What exactly did you mean when you prayed that prayer this morning? Where did you see yourself in the will of God, in the kingdom of God? You prayed for it, that His will be done, that His kingdom come. What did you mean? How does that impact your life? See, the questions that should be in the mind of the one reading this gospel are these questions. As one who follows Christ, 
as one who seeks to be a true disciple of Christ, what is my part in fulfilling the plan of God? How can I best put myself in a place to fully experience fulfilling the plan of God? The story that we have before us this morning, Joseph, as Matthew tells it, it highlights three decisions that you and I can make to put ourselves in that position, a best position of fulfilling the the, the plan of God. Three decisions, and each one of these decisions requires from you and me that we take a transcendent view. And by transcendent view, I just mean however you need to think of getting out of the weeds or, or getting above the tree line. However you need to think about getting beyond this world and what we experience in it. So the first decision that we have to make is that we must take a transcendent perspective on where our hope lies. We have to have a transcendent perspective on where our hope lies. Look at how Matthew tells this story. He actually puts two stories back to back with nothing in between. At the end of verse 18, we read that Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more. They've been killed. Then immediately, in verse 19, we read, but when Herod died. So the way Matthew tells it, in one instant, Herod is acting, he's killing, and the next instant, Herod is acted upon, and he dies. So once again, Matthew writes so that you and I don't miss the contrast. Herod kills, Herod dies. And this is where we must get our transcendent perspective on where our hope lies. Without that transcendent perspective that God is bigger than what we experience. We could easily be lost in despair at the tyranny of such an evil king. Herod knows, he knows he's an evil king. He knows the depth of his cruelty. And so Herod has this fear. He fears that when he dies, instead of mourning his death, people will rejoice. (laughs) Go figure. And so he came up with this plan. He ordered that all the prominent, all the important Jews throughout the entire land of Israel, throughout his whole kingdom, he ordered that they appear before him in Jericho. And once all these prominent, important Jewish people and leaders got to Jericho, Herod had them put in the Hippodrome there. He sequestered them there. And then he gave this order. As soon as I die, and he knew he was close to death at that point, He said, kill all of them. That way, when I die, there will actually be mourning throughout the land of Israel. But when Herod died, so did his power. So his sister reversed the order and released the Jews. Why shouldn't she? Right? Herod is dead. What can he do now? So much for the power of the one that history calls great. Just like that. It's all over. And when he dies, there must have been a sigh of relief in the world. Just as I imagine, there was a collective sigh of relief around the world when Hitler was no more. Because evil has been stopped. Hope should be reborn. Right? 
Not so much. The relief is only temporary. And the hope based on it is fleeting. Look in verse 22. In verse 22 we read that Herod's son Archelaus became ruler after him. And so, as it turns out, Archelaus is just as evil or more evil than he observed his father to be. So mothers and fathers, remember that. Your children are watching, right? And so Archelaus is an evil, cruel king. On one occasion, he had 3,000 Jewish people put to death. Many of them were just visitors to Jerusalem celebrating the Passover because Archelaus feared a rebellion. That's just one thing he did. He was so bad that the leaders in Judea and Samaria, they complained to Rome. you got to do something about this king. And so Rome, in fact, deposed him. He was so bad. Now think about this. Romans are infamous for their cruelty, right? Crucifixion, the cross, that was a Roman invention, just one of the many ways that they tortured people. So how ruthless do you have to be in order to be deposed by Rome for your ruthlessness? So you get the picture about Archelaus. And so Archelaus was deposed. Hope is reborn, right? Archelaus is gone. Not so much. Archelaus is replaced. This time Rome says, no king, we're going to do a governor instead. And so they appoint a governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. And so it goes. Evil is replaced by evil is replaced by evil. This is why if we don't have a transcendent perspective on where our hope lies, we will not have hope. Neither will we have the heart to find our place in fulfilling the plan of God. It could all seem hopeless, futile. Our faith in Christ seems more at odds with our culture every day. And the opposition to and the derision of the claim, our claim, That Jesus is the one and only way to the one and only God. Opposition to that claim grows every day and not always in a kind and gentle way. We live in an angry nation. Hashtag State of the Union Address. Honestly. You better have a transcendent view That God is above and beyond this moment in time, in this culture, or you will have no hope. You will have no heart to take your place in fulfilling the purpose of God. But with a transcendent view, you and I can have hope. God alone is omnipotent, right? God alone is all-powerful. Jesus who reigns now transcendently in heaven above the earth, will come again. And when Jesus comes again, he will come as a conquering king. And in that moment, Jesus will set all things right. So this is our hope in the person of Jesus Christ. All other hopes bring only temporary relief. And so you and I have to keep a transcendent view of hope. It's in Jesus. It's in His power. It's in His return. That's what fuels our hope. Right now, for passionately, 
fulfilling the purpose of God, for working to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. So make that decision. You, me, make that decision to have a transcendent perspective on where our hope lies every moment of every day. Secondly, second decision. You and I have to choose to have a transcendent perspective on your place, where you are right now in this moment. In the story before us, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in Egypt. Egypt, right? That is a byword to the Jewish people for cruel oppression. Egypt was the place from which God powerfully delivered them from slavery. Egypt is the place to get out of, not the place to go to. So Joseph may have questioned, Lord, why are we in this place? Why is the one that you said would be born to be the one who would save his people from sin, why is he cut off from the family of God? And the people of God. And the land of God's people. Now, because you and I have the gospel of Matthew in our hands, you and I know the answer to that question. The answer to the question, why Egypt, is because that fulfills the word of the Lord. Because God said through his prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So God has fulfilled his word. But Joseph may not have known that at the time. Joseph might not even have known of this verse in Hosea. Or if he knew it, he might not have remembered it. But that's okay. Because Matthew, I mean, because Joseph had his own good word from the Lord in verse 13. Flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. And so Joseph knew before he went to Egypt. And Joseph knew while he waited in Egypt, in that place, that God had more for him. You might be in a bit of a Joseph and Mary pattern right now. You might not understand why you are in the place that you are in. You might not believe it's the right place. You might not believe it's the best place. It may be a place that you don't want to be. So therefore, you're in a waiting pattern, waiting for something. What are you waiting for? I can guess a spouse, some of you, satisfying job. Oh, you're waiting in the mail for the mail for an acceptance letter, waiting for money. Maybe you have a a rebellious child, and you're waiting for that child to come back. Lots of things that we could wait for. So you got to choose to have a transcendent perspective on the place where you are right now. Because God has a purpose for you in that place. We're not told what Joseph did while he waited. We know that he was a carpenter by trade, and maybe he found work as a carpenter. In Egypt, we know he found some way to support his family. Perhaps it was 
not what would have been considered exceptional work that he did in Egypt because it's not mentioned anywhere. But we know this, that Joseph kept the family together and he kept the family safe, waiting for the Lord to call him to the next step. And so this is how you and I can be part of God's plan. Be faithful in the place where you are right now. Mary Faith Phillips was a Bible teacher for many, many years at Columbia Bible College. She taught students how to teach the Bible, and I went to seminary there. And so she would always tell the students as she sent them out as graduating seniors out to find a place to teach Bible in the world, she would say this, wherever you go, unpack your bags. And by that, she just simply meant this, be where you are. Don't view where you are as a stopping place for something bigger, something better. It may be that, but it may not be that. Wherever it is that you are, unpack your bags. Get busy seeking to fulfill the purpose of God in that place. Decide to have a transcendent perspective on your place. Knowing that this is where God wants you, it's where He has you for now, maybe for always. Thirdly, we gotta have to we have to choose to have a transcendent view of our path, particularly when the path before us is unclear. Look again in verse 20. Joseph is told to rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. The command doesn't get any more specific than that. Joseph is not told where to go in Israel. He's just told, go to the land of Israel. Somewhere. Now, some people would be crippled by that lack of specificity, right? It could render them immobile, Lord. The land of Israel is a big place. I I can't go until I know where you want me to go. But that's not Joseph's response. Look in 21. Verse 21, it simply says that Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. Now we infer from the text that Joseph decided that Judah would be the best place for them to go. How did he arrive at that decision? I I think that that Joseph just used the brain, the mind, the reason that God gave him. And it made sense to go to Judah, right? Bethlehem is in Judah. And that's where God wanted Jesus to be born. Rachel, Jacob's wife, is buried there. Naomi, Ruth, they went there, met Boaz, got married. Boaz had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David. King David, he's from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is in Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah. And Jerusalem is the the place of political power. And the, the temple of God is there in Jerusalem. So yeah, Judah must be the place that I should go. I'm glad Matthew tells this part of the story. How Joseph moves out with no less than the Son of God in his arms, even when he doesn't know exactly where to go. And I'm glad that Matthew 
has already told us a little bit about the character of Joseph. This is the third visit that Joseph has had from an angel. And Joseph's pattern so far has been this. Divine message, immediate obedience. Divine message, immediate obedience. And so it speaks to the spiritual character of Joseph. That carpenter, though he was, he was still sensitive to the work of the Lord in his life. He embraced it because Joseph knew that he was in partnership with God. He had already done and would continue to do his part in advancing the kingdom of God through Jesus. And so he could just start moving, even though he didn't know exactly where he was going, even though the path was not clear. And no less is true for you and for me. This kingdom work is vital. We have a vital part in it, but our path, our way forward, may not always be clear to us. That's why we have to have a transcendent view of that path, knowing that our path is crystal clear to God. And we, like Joseph, are in partnership with God. And we, like Joseph, must be sensitive to the work of the Lord in our lives. Then you and I can just move and keep on moving. And guess what? We have something even better than Joseph's dreams. Not that those dreams weren't amazing on the occasions when he experienced them. They certainly must have been. But you and I, as believers in Christ, have the Spirit of God. Always. We don't have to wait for dreams. You and I have the Spirit of God and His power. Jesus told His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Is that exciting? We have the power of the Spirit. How does that verse make you feel? O one indwelled by the Spirit of God. How does it humble you? Wow. Spirit of God living in me. How does it encourage you? Wow. Spirit of God living in me. How does it frighten you? Oh, dear. <laughs> the Spirit of God living in me. If you and I will be effective for Christ, wherever we are, we have to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God. He knows the path for you. And that means at the very least, and the most simply, that you'll always be mindful of the presence of the Spirit in you. Always be mindful of the fact that there is one on whom you can call and depend. You can ask Him to lead you because we know that's what the Spirit does. It's the example in Scripture. In chapter 4, just a couple of chapters over, Matthew is going to tell us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus Himself, led by the Spirit of God, how much more must you and I be? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, it's a birthright of yours if you are a son or daughter of God, being led by the Spirit, the Spirit that Paul says enables us 
to cry out, Abba, Father, it's your birthright to be led by the Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Hear that? Walking by the Spirit? Being led by the Spirit? These are possibilities that belong to us as believers in Christ. But for us, it can be a fearful place. Where might the Spirit lead? We feel vulnerable, not knowing, not certain. Maybe that's what Jesus requires. He said to Nicodemus when they had their meeting, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Unpredictability. There's one thing that Presbyterians don't like. It's unpredictability, right? Because we do everything decently and in order. And, and we should. But you don't know where or when or in what direction or at what speed the wind is going to blow. And you have no idea what kind of radical obedience the Lord might call you to through His Word. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What is it that makes the Word of God alive? It's the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God which would take which would otherwise be just ink on paper, and he brings those words to life. And what do those living words do? Hebrews 4 tells us. They pierce, right? Dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Whoa! Talk about vulnerability, naked and exposed. That's what Hebrews says. What? Our hearts, our thoughts, our intentions, all exposed by the Word, the living Word of God. It lays them bare. It reveals to you why you are doing what you are doing. The Word of God can tell you that. It knows your intentions, your motivations. The Word of God can tell you why you are going where you are going or why you are not going where you are not going. And why you're living the way you are living. The living Word of God will expose that to you. And so are you brave enough to pray? Spirit of God, you have a transcendent view of my path. Show me through your Word How it is you want me to live my life and use my gifts. Are you brave enough to pray that prayer? Are you brave enough to pray that prayer for someone else? A friend? A spouse? What if your husband happens to read Acts chapter 4? And he reads in that chapter that all the believers were of one heart and, and one soul. Everyone said, ah, this doesn't belong to me. You know, this belongs to everybody. It's a blessing from the Lord. 
there shouldn't be any needy among us. So, so let's sell our land, let's sell our houses, let's give it to the apostles so that they can distribute it so there may not be any among us who are in need. So husband reads that verse. And then he says to wife, Honey, guess what? <laughs> right? I'm just saying that there are so many calls in the Word of God to radical faith and radical obedience. There are calls to radical love and radical compassion. And it's the obedience to these calls that advance the kingdom of God. And we get to these places when we're already moving, like Joseph was moving, moving in the Spirit, even when we don't know exactly where we're going. So we come to the end of Joseph's story, and then we're done. It's a beautiful ending. He didn't wait for specifics to obey. He moved out, and he went to Israel. And while he was there, in the place he thought he should go, God met him with another dream. Look in verse 22. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew from where he was to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So now look, it's so great. We've gotten to the place that we were eager to be, fulfilling the purpose of God. God knows the end for Jesus and Joseph and Mary is in Nazareth. That's the fulfillment of his word. Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. And so God brings it about. And we've gotten what we're after. What we're seeking. What we're excited and passionate about. What we can be confident in. Which is fulfilling the purpose of God. And God did it through someone who had a transcendent view of hope. So Joseph went to hopeless Egypt. God did it through someone who had a transcendent view of his place. So Joseph stayed in hopeless Egypt. And God did it through someone who had a transcendent view of his path. So Joseph got up and came out of Egypt and went to Nazareth and thus fulfilled the word of the Lord. How will the Lord fulfill His plan through us when we decide to have a transcendent perspective on our hope and our place and our path? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for these stories. Thank you, Lord, for preserving them for us and recording them in your word, because they're true stories, they're not myths, they're not fables. Lord, these stories re record your work, you as the transcendent, all-powerful God, your work in the lives of people here in this place that we call earth. Or they show the partnership that exists between us, you with your plan, which is good and perfect and well-being. And we, the ones in this time and this place, called by you to fulfill that plan and that purpose, to advance your kingdom until the day when you, Lord Jesus, return 
as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the day that you will set all things right. Until then, Lord, we partner with you. We want to be successful, Lord, in our part of the partnership. And so, Lord, remind us of our true hope this morning. Remind us of your sovereignty over our place. Remind us, Lord, that you have a clear path for us. Help us to seek your spirit in finding it. Lord, we want to accomplish great things for you. We want, I hope, to live radically for you. Because that's how much we desire that your kingdom come and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us do that through the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.